0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network.
1: The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift the Eras Tour, presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet?
2: Terms apply. See Capital One.com for details.
1: Is it Rolling Bob?
0: Talking Dylan.
1: He's your host, Lucas Hare.
0: He's your host.
1: But on the digital bomb phone from L.A., he's our guest, musician, and writer, Michael Simmons.
2: For them that must obey authority, that they do not respect in any degree, who despise their jobs, their destinies, speak jealously of them that are free, cultivate their flowers to be nothing more than something they invest in. And if my thought dreams could be seen, they'd probably put my head in a guillotine. But it's all right, Ma, it's life and life only.
1: Whoa. Some of the best uh, lyrics we've ever started with, Michael. Why did you choose those?
2: A couple of reasons. One, it exemplifies how I've always thought about the rest of humanity. (laughs) There are only eleven, teen, I should say eleven hip people on the planet at any given time, and that list is fluid. It's never the same list mm-hmm. from moment to moment. but the other thing is, is that I got into Bob, I got heavily into Bob through bringing it all back home and by the age of ten, I had memorized every lyric on the album.
1: whoa, how did you fit in at school? <laughs> no seriously okay, fine I mean, you you were okay. I mean be- Having Dylan lyrics in your head when you're ten.
2: Uh, you know, it's the uh, Born and Old Soul routine. My earliest memories are of feeling that I was older than than
1: my height. <laughs> where Where exactly did you grow up? New York City. In what part of New York?
2: Well, I was born on the Upper West Side, Seventy Ninth Street and Riverside Drive. Well, I was born in a hospital, but I was my folks were living on the Upper West Side, and then. When I was five, we moved to uh, Upper East Side.
1: Oh, right. So you were, but you weren't one of those suburban kids which, you know, longed to get to the big city. You were in the big city.
2: I was in the thick of it, in the belly of the beast.
1: Did you, you gravitated down to the East Village at a fairly young age? Is that right?
2: Quickly. <laughs> in fact, I ran away from home when I was six, in 1967, when I was 12. And I spent a total of six hours roaming around the village. Until a kindly crash pad leader talked me into going home, I had left a, a long uh, manifesto on my bed, which wasn't uh, responded to well by my parents when <laughs> I came home at the age of twelve, wondering why we couldn't say fuck in public, things like that. You know, it was my—it was like I was like Baby
0: Ginsburg. <laughs> I'm guessing it's all right, Ma. Didn't didn't as a, as a sentiment didn't
1: pacify her then so it spoke to you it's all right Ma. of course yeah and so what was the very first dylan song you ever heard i don't know because my i
2: always loved music from when i was a baby and i used to conduct symphonies uh which i learned from watching bugs bunny cartoons (laughs) when he would conduct symphonies (laughs) leopold (laughs) yeah Uh, so i always loved music Uh, And I always sang, and I used to sing Broadway show tunes when I was a kid. I was always in the camp musical, and I was always the leading man. So I sang things like, do I love you because you're beautiful? Or are you beautiful because I love you? Which is Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mm -hmm. But uh, in February of 64, like virtually every other American kid, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Actually, I'd seen them in late 63 on the Jack Parr show, but that wasn't live. That was film clips. So I was aware of who they were and I I loved their music. But when I saw them on Ed Sullivan, I said, that's it. And then, so I I got into rock music or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, including everything from rhythm and blues to folk, to uh, country even. Uh, I was into Johnny Cash and actually I was into national country at a very early age. But anyway, that's a whole other shtick. When I was 10, April 10th, 1965, I got a guitar for my birthday after seeing the new Christie minstrels that night. And uh, I learned how to play and My father bought me, let me pick out two books, song folios. One was 101 song, uh, folk songs. And the other was the song folio for bringing it all back home. I had not heard the album yet. I'd heard Dylan on the radio, on non-commercial radio, like Oscar Brand's Folk Show on uh, WNYC, but I hadn't heard the, the album yet. And uh, so <laughs> I had the song folio for about a couple of weeks before I even knew the melodies, but I made up melodies, and, and, and weirdly enough, the they were very similar to the ones Bob wrote for himself. A couple of weeks later, I, I begged to get the record. My father bought it for me. And that's when I memorized the songs. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, as far as country goes, was there a country station in New York City, or did you get them from farm? How, how did you hear country? Did you buy some Johnny Cash?
2: Uh, there was a friend of mine who was in, into ham radio, and he got into country music at a uh, you know weird age for a Jewish <laughs> New Yorker kid and uh there were radio stations there was wjrz which came out of new jersey but late at night you could get wwva out of wheeling west virginia and they had live country music including bluegrass and i was one of those kids who stayed up well even then i stayed up till six o'clock in the morning i didn't sleep for my entire youth because i was either reading or listening to the radio under the covers
1: yeah, we should say that uh, that we're uh, we're morning here, uh, and you are, uh, what about, coming up to one o'clock in the morning there? We're we're sort of early coffee morning here.
2: We're Almost 1 a.m., yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still drinking coffee.
1: Is that when you do uh, most of your writing, sort of middle of the night?
2: Uh, a lot of it, yeah, is done when mo- the moon shines in the square sleep.
1: So, uh, so you got into so. And did, when did you decide to to be a musician, or did you always know that you were a musician, even when you were like ten years old, twelve years old? When
2: 14, I saw the Beatles and Ed Sullivan,
1: and you picked up the guitar and you thought, "This is what I want to do."
2: Well, I got the guitar. I saw the the Fab's in February '64, and I got a guitar a little over a year later, April '65. So. I'd been bugging my parents. I want a guitar. I want a guitar. I want a guitar.
1: You eventually hooked up with uh, Kinky Friedman, um, but was that after you had your own band?
2: Yeah, I would already had my own band, uh, and I already had been a, was a professional working musician. I became a fan of Kinky's when he first played in New York in '73, I think it was, and then we became friends at the Lone Star Cafe, which was a club in New York in '77.
1: What did you play uh, with in general? Did you play uh, rhythm or lead? I or?
2: played r- acoustic rhythm guitar and I sang harmonies and kind of did, you know, was a sidekick on stage so I would do little comedy improvised comedy
1: sketches. Did you have a nickname by the way? Cuz everybody in his band seemed to have some sort of nickname.
2: Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm Mike Simmons so Kinky calls me Kike. <laughs>
1: what just kike simmons is that how you'd be introduced? kike
2: simmons if he if he's introducing me that's kike simmons if he's calling me it's hey kike
1: he's as somebody i don't know if uh, you know our listeners are familiar with kinky friedman i i was also a big kinky friedman fan as a as a kid as a jewish kid when i when i first heard the name kinky friedman and the texas jew boys i thought these guys are insane that is asking for to rubble and I, I used to see the album, you know, the, uh, I'm not sure if it was the first album, the one with the, you know, campfires burning and, yeah, yes. uh, mm-hmm. is that the first one? And I, I used to see it, you know, a lot of, uh, back then, you know, you'd be in somebody's room or, and, and there'd be all these albums all over the floor. There'd be whatever, Disraeli Gears and <laughs> some Beatle album and Kinky Friedman, you know, with, shall we say, cigarette papers and uh, substances all over them
2: well the double albums were the best because you could uh clean the pot in the middle
1: anyway but but going you on so you joint, you cannot
2: roll a joint on a cd card
1: yeah i know another reason why they're inferior Or read your liner notes it turns out <laughs> yes or exactly so we should we, maybe we should uh segue to the uh well we could segue to the the fact that you can't read liner notes on cd you know, well, just before we do that, um, Michael, can
0: I, just to return to the, those heady days of 64 and 65, because that, that's a hugely dense period in between seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in February 64. And then, I mean, I still am slightly incredulous, even though I think I probably knew it, that Bringing It All Back Home was out in April, having only been recorded in January. And then the Don't Look Back tour, as we, I suppose, we could refer to it is is May. And then... He starts recording like a Rolling Stone, and 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 Highway 61 revisited in June, Newport, to July. I mean, were you when you got bringing it all back home? Were you then on the Dylan bus, as we like to say? Were you ready for Highway 61 and all that? And it came so fast. Yeah. You
2: no, know, the actual story is, I'd heard Dylan before, loved him, but bringing it all back home was the beginning to the end of the beginning. That summer, maybe it was was right after it came out. We were in a diner. Uh, so we were in a diner in those days. Each booth in a diner had its own little mini jukebox. Mm. So I was flipping through the, and for a nickel, you get five songs, Sam the and the Pharaohs, Jerry and the Pacemakers, et cetera. And um, I was flipping through the selection and I saw Like a Rolling Stone, Bob Dylan. And I thought, has he written a song about the Rolling Stones? It's what it's is this? I, I didn't know anything about it. And I played it and it, it was like, you know, I remember where I was when Kennedy was, was where, when I found out Kennedy was assassinated. I remember where I was when I found out about 9-11, although this was a obviously a positive experience, uh, not to be compared to tragedies. Uh, I remember exactly the moment I heard like a rolling stone. It's, you know, as I've often said, it sounded like freedom. Which is what bringing it all back home and it's all right. Ma spoke to me. That's how it spoke to me. You know, I wanted out. I knew something was wrong.
1: Did you actually leave New York? Most people want to get to New York.
2: I lived in upstate New York for a while. I briefly went to college up there. And then I lived in a commune in the mid-70s. And uh, so I spent time in upstate New York. And I, I had traveled all over the U.S. by the time I was 14. Uh, you know, with other kids. Now, I don't mean with, uh, on my own. I wasn't Jack Kerouac. You didn't
1: hop freight trains like Bob Dylan and then work <laughs> in the well, circus. Well,
0: Story about
1: that. Well, not like Bob Dylan. 66
2: <laughs> or 67, the first major w- of sorts, biography of Dylan came out. It was called The Bob Dylan Story by Cy and Barbara Ribakoff. I even remember that. Wow. Uh, and it was just this little cheap paperback. And in it, was the story of how Bob had left home at 14 or something and hopped freight trains and you know been in a carnival, worked in a carnival in New Mexico, et cetera. And so I said to myself, well, you know, I'm never going to be Bob Dylan if I don't do that. So that was part of my impetus in '67 for running away. It was because I'd read Dylan had done it. Of course, several years later, I found out that he
1: had made yes. the whole thing up. <laughs> yes. Of so I know for a fact that kids are impressionable, but you could you could do stuff like that back then. I mean, I um I hitchhiked to New York from uh, Winnipeg, but I was when I was like mm, seventeen, I guess. So I was a lot older, but you could do that. You could stick out your thumb anyway and and get oh, to yes. places.
2: Oh yeah, it was a different wor- country. It was a different world. People didn't live in a constant state of terror back then. You you were living in a ghetto or something, and you would, you know, when cops would would round the corner, then, you know, that that hasn't changed, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, I didn't live in a constant state
1: of fear. You've been a lead reviewer for Mojo magazine for uh, decades, I guess. And uh, you you reviewed, for instance, the cutting edge bootleg. Uh, You ended up You know, well, you've reviewed everything pretty much. It
2: wasn't a review; it was more of a history.
1: It was more of a history, yeah. But I think they 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 would give you a sort of a uh, a a little bit for the review, wouldn't they? Because you, I think you gave it a five star review. But then there was this giant article. It must have been weird stepping inside something that had come out of the jukebox from you, you know, to your brain. Then you're you're going back into that time, and you've got all this background material and you can hear all the, every single take.
2: Virtually everything I do is like that. Uh, I mean, life is like that. You know, one of my favorite literary conceits is uh, in one of my favorite books, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, in which the protagonist Billy Pilgrim lives in the past, present, and future simultaneously. And that's how I live. So I don't really see... That much difference between the three.
1: That's very Bob Dylan. It's
2: going to blend into each other.
1: I think um, I, I was reading that uh, that huge article you, you wrote about the cutting edge, and um, and you say it's a it's an intimate tour of the artist's mind, as a look behind the wizard's curtain in which his levers and pulleys are revealed. That's sort of how I think I think of of Dylan, the the true artist, and the guy who who can't be. Um, held down so talking about the cutting edge
0: i think that was the beginning of the dylan office kind of i guess they you know people call them copyright dumps but now we have these these copyright dumps that come out you know just before the end of the year and they're just quietly releasing material to protect the copyright in the eu the the cutting edge was presented kind of i think they were sort of testing the water it was both a copyright dump to protect everything from 1965 and 1966 but it was also presented as part of the bootleg series. So it's. I guess they want it to be an artistic statement as well. How much do you think it is a valid artistic statement to get inside the mind of Bob Dylan and listen to all those 17 CDs? And how much do you think it's just nice for the fans to have everything?
2: Well, for folks like us, it's incredible because you can hear Bob... You know, Bob is not only a revolutionary artist, he's an evolutionary artist. He's constantly changing. He's the most mutable... He changes songs from take to take. Mm. He changes tempos. He changes lyrics. I was re- re-watching the uh, Scorsese Rolling Thunder movie the other night, and I just reviewed the DVD for Mojo. And um, there's a bonus of uh, footage of Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You. Mm. The lyrics are almost completely different than mm. <laughs> the National Skyline version. And there are many songs like uh, well, he particularly you know,
0: he, took those National Skyland songs, didn't he, on that on that and the next Rolling Thunder tour, and just took them to pieces. He did it to Lay, Lady Lay. He did it to I threw it all away, um, and he makes them much more carnal and much more kind of uh, bacchanalian kind of songs than this idyllic Woodstock vision of, of a few years previously, didn't he?
2: Well, he was in, but in '69 he was domesticated. He was a, a, a father. He was had you know, mellowed out from his uh, amphetamine days. By 75, he was on fire. Mm. And, I mean, that's what Rolling Thunder, the, the energy of Rolling Thunder is astounding. It's one of the things that m- makes Rolling Thunder thunderous.
0: Yeah, you spoke to T-Bone Burnett a little bit about it too, didn't you?
2: I did, yeah. The most interesting thing he said is that the reason he moved to Woodstock in 1970, I guess it was, is that Grossman or somebody wanted him to replace Janis Joplin in <laughs> The Full Tilt Boogie Band after she died. And I said, you, know, uh, you don't look a thing like Janis and
1: yeah, He
0: could never have been a casting director, Albert Grossman.
1: Speaking of that time, again, you've, you've done a lot of uh, work and uh, listening to uh, Self Portrait and indeed wrote the liner notes to... Another self portrait. I mean, I, I was reading today the um, Greal Marcus's original review and uh, the famous one, um, What is This Shit? And then he went back to it when, mm. uh, in there's an article that you wrote about 1970s Bob Dylan, and Greal Marcus was invited to go back and re review Self Portrait in, I think it was 2010, and uh, he called it mediocre and insulting and one mm. disappointment after another. Uh, my job dropped because not only because I, I've loved the album for, for many years, but also the fact that he went back to it and still hated it. I couldn't believe it. But then again, you know, he's Greal cool Marcus. He's certainly entitled. What, what I you agree with up? him, I'd say. Yeah, that good? Well, let's let's throw that open.
2: I love Self-Portrait. I loved it when it came out. I still love it. It's, uh, it's an album that makes me feel good. I mean, he basically announces what's happening in the opening song uh, all the tired horses uh all the tired horses in the sun how am i supposed to get any riding done he obviously i shouldn't say obviously because he wrote new morning at the same time so he was inferring that he was uh had a writer's block of some kind i mean i don't know that for a fact you know one thing i want to note is that one thing i am wary of doing is second guessing Bob Dylan. I have no idea what you know we can guess, and it's fun to talk about, but I don't know what dylan th- how Dylan thinks you know the the only indications is his art
0: and all that and, matters arguably actually it's all, you know, all we, it's, it's all we should be interested in really. You know when people ask me about Dylan's marriages or what Dylan has for breakfast I, I I have to sort of feign interest because i just i just don't I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the words, the music, the career. You can actually feign the
1: interest? <laughs>
0: an I'm an, an out-of-work yeah, actor, Michael. He, he, Give me a break. Keep, yeah. uh,
1: <laughs> keep that in mind. But I'm, I'm, I remember when I first heard uh, Self-Portrait, uh, and I, was, uh, I had already read the Grail Marcus review, and that really fucked me up because I felt stupid for – I knew I liked it, but I had to kind of pretend that I didn't like it because it was so uncool to like it I didn't have I wasn't the prodigy that uh, that you were Michael I mean I I was very you know on, on the on, the word on the street was that Dylan had sold out and uh, this album was was shit and uh, it it was like my, my quiet it was like my secret um, vice or pleasure you know I, I I liked it but I knew I shouldn't like it and a couple of years later I finally, Thought.
0: you invented the guilty pleasure back in yes i
1: exactly it was it um, was the guilty pleasure <laughs> but it was so full of you know i'd never i was musically pretty ignorant i, I knew the beatles the rolling stones and all of the, but i didn't know anything really about the blues and, or certainly even rogers and hammerstein or anything i'd never heard blue moon before and i thought what a brilliant song this is you know, it, that's the first time I heard Blue Moon, and mm-hmm. so, so I, I, I still love Dylan's version of it. You know, I've heard all the other versions of it now, but um, because that was the first one I heard, and he sort of and another thing, early morning rain, because I'm Canadian. Gordon Lightfoot was always regarded as uh, he was, in Canada. He, because he was Canadian, he just was he wasn't hip. You know, because you had to listen to him because he was all over the radio. Because he was Canadian, there was a Canadian content thing on the radio where they they had to play the Guess Who and they had to play Gordon Lightfoot. But hearing Dylan's version of "Early Morning Rain," I realized that that was a brilliant song, and Gordon Lightfoot was actually cool. It was. I, I grew uh, up yeah.
0: on the George Hamilton the Fourth version for, for, for what it's worth. <laughs> that one. But the um, the what fascinates me about Self Portrait, and I think we you know we can we can all agree to disagree on whether we think it's quote unquote shit or not. But what fascinates me about it is is a key uh, statement that Dylan gave at some point where he just said, you know, I want to get all these people off my back or worse to that effect, I'm going to put out something that they're really not going to like. That fascinates me because for me, it worked with Self-Portrait, but that by the release of another Self-Portrait, it's quite clear that there was good material there if he would wanted to put out a quote-unquote good album, but something else was going on and he wanted to throw people off the scent. He wanted to ride on the coattails of Great White Wonder, throw in some strings it pissed people off a little bit, and and as you say, Michael, he was working on New Morning at the same time, and he was working on all those great um, songs that appeared on Another Self Portrait. There was stuff in the tank, but he had an agenda, didn't he?
2: Well, as, he, as you point out, he, he said he did. Um... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's he a good could, point. didn't he write that's that? Really did he write point. that in
1: Chronicles? Is that? What, I think that's. Yeah. What I can't remember the word. which. Is, which is just fiction anyway. So. I, I'm not it just sure happens I to that. chime with it rather neatly rather than <laughs> neat What me, one but, yeah.
2: says one minute, it, it's like his songs. What he sings one minute is not going to be the same as what he sings 10 minutes later. What he says one minute is not necessarily going to be what he says 10 minutes later. He's contradicted himself all the time. I mean, listen to I Contain Multitudes. He tells you that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: A
0: man of many moods. Get over it. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, I read a, a thing that uh, just a little footnote. I was reading Barney Hoskins' book about the uh, Laurel Canyon uh, scene uh, in the '70s, and uh, he had uh, Barney Hoskins had this little theory that the, the title "Self Portrait" was ironic, and that it was his little swipe at all the uh, singer songwriter confessional songs that were that were coming out at that point. But, but that self-portrait in a way should be in quotes.
2: Like love and theft. Mm.
1: Uh, yeah.
2: Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I don't yeah, know. I think it's, I, I, the only guess I have, again, I can't second guessing Bob Dylan is kind of a chump's game. I have no mm. idea. I think it's called self-portrait because it, he sings a lot of music that he likes. He's letting you know what he listens to. That's the most obvious explanation. But I, I, either way, I think the title works. And I don't think uh, it has anything to do with Harry Chapin. or? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and also calling the, the bootleg series years later another self-portrait and putting another one of his paintings on the front as if to, and I'm trying not to second-guess Bob Dylan here, but just to say, you know, you thought that was me? Well, this is me too, and this is completely different.
2: Oh, it's, you know, it's another side of Bob Dylan, part mm-hmm. 103. Yeah. The one thing I'll say about what I th- I think about Dylan is, you know, he's always portrayed as this mysterious unfathomable character I don't think he's mysterious. I think you know any great talent you know one asks you know where does that come from and that's a big question but I don't think Dylan is mysterious so all of this searching about trying to figure Bob Dylan out to me is like, well, what do you need to figure out
1: listen to his music you um I know that you're an old, old pal of people who have worked with or traveled with uh, Bob like Rato Sloman. Are there any stories that he, say, Ratso told you that uh, didn't make his book? Or or indeed Kinky Friedman who toured with them, or Al Cooper, who you all of whom well, you know.
2: My favorite Kinky story is they were on a plane going to Mexico uh, around the time of Rolling Thunder. It was a small plane, and I think they were flying from L.A. to Yalapa. I don't know how to pronounce it, Jalapa, Yalapa. It's mm-hmm. Y-E-L-A-P-A. And so Bob was assigned a seat and there was no first class. And he's sitting with this like Jewish American princess from Long Island. And um, she turns and she says at the top of her lungs, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm sitting next to Bob doing. I can't believe it. I'm sitting next to Bob Dylan. This is the biggest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. I'm on an airplane and I'm sitting next to Bob doing. And finally, Dylan's been shifting the seat uncomfortably the whole time, and finally he just looks at her and says, pinch yourself.
1: (laughs) What did you, I don't think, you said a a lot of your stuff, and I've read all your stuff over the years, but I haven't read recently what you said about Rough and Rowdy Ways. Any comments on on that album?
2: Well, like almost everyone else, I think it's an incredible album. It was, even though it came from Dylan... Who, who, you know, has been delivering steadily since 1997. Well, he's been delivering steadily since 1961 or 62. But, you know, he's had a few rough years musically. And uh, uh, But even that's the I, I like. But anyway, I mean, since, since Time Out of Mind, his studio stuff of original material has been consistent. But Rough and Rowdy Ways blew me away. It was like, what? Particularly given that it came out in the middle of this, Plague and Trump, and everything. It was like, thank you.
1: Did you hear Murder Most Foul when it dropped, like everybody else, or had you heard it I earlier? Did.
2: No, no, no. I, I only first time I heard it was on YouTube. I was fascinated and a little befuddled by it, but I grew to fall in love with it, and I, I, I love Rough and Rowdy Ways. I listened to it several times today. I mm-hmm. still think it's an incredible album. It's what came out. I can't remember June. I think.
0: Yeah, June twenty
1: twenty. Yeah,
0: June nineteenth, yeah. my wife's birthday. <laughs>
1: so I had that that uh, date tattooed. <laughs> Don't forget mom. that. Yeah, dude. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's easy.
0: You should have seen her face when I wanted to unwrap my copy of Rough and Rowdy Ways when I was meant to be celebrating her birthday. <laughs> I was saying this is important <laughs> too, you know. <laughs> um going back to the the bootleg series you've written at length about more blood more tracks about the the gospel set you know we've talked about the, uh, the cutting edge and i know that you're a i mean like like most of us you've got, a, you've got a fair share of bootlegs do you do you have a personal feeling about one that you'd like to see released at some point soon somebody
2: asked me that question right after another self-portrait came out and i said i'd like to see the uh you know the uh Basement tapes, mm-hmm. and then it came out. Of, not that I had anything to do with it, but I mean, my, my wish was fulfilled yeah. again, not because of me, just because it was. I think a lot of people wanted to hear more of the basement tapes. I don't know. I mean, there's the supper club stuff from the early 90s, there's a lot of live stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? I'd like to hear. I was talking to Ratso about this the other day. I have bootlegs of it, but the 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 rehearsal stuff with the Grateful Dead is incredible oh, and wow. far superior to the release Dylan and the Dead album, which isn't very good.
0: It's particularly interesting, isn't it because he he credits the Dead with completely revitalizing him and he and a lot of those you know kind of folky bluesy covers that he played in, in the in the 90s and 2000s he he credits very much with Jerry Garcia plugging him back into that sort of way of thinking and you think and you read about it in in Chronicles and you think mm. yeah none of this is in the music that I hear that you released with the Grateful Dead but I'm sure there must be something I
2: mean there's plenty I have like uh, I don't know I have several CDs of material so there's a lot of stuff to choose from it's really great stuff and you know he he was very close to, apparently from what I understand I don't know for sure but they, you know he, he and Garcia were kindred spirits in many ways it's fascinating yeah. to
0: me that all the all the bits that we think are the lowest ebb there's something happening you know Dylan and the Dead is just before Oh Mercy when suddenly he was he was good again and you know <laughs> and the the arc would have it that for years before that he wasn't but there's there's bound to be something in there we just didn't know we just go back to my my self-portrait point is that you know he it seems like he releases this stuff
1: <laughs> when he wants to create a certain impression, well, you know he's willing to fail. That's that's the difference between him and and so many other people.
2: That's the difference between a a great talent and a hack. I mean, Neil Young has done that too. The willingness to fall on their face uh, yeah. in the pursuit of something different or something new, not different for the or new for the sake of being different and new, but just because they that's where they want to go. Music for the orchestra.
1: yeah. I mean, I was thinking about uh, the, one of the, his pieces of work of art that, that really sort of haunts me, because I, I, I still don't get it, uh, is, uh, is the film of Masked and Anonymous. Um, you know, I, the first time I saw it, I, I was completely mystified. And, uh, and embarrassed because I'd actually brought a couple of friends to see it at the, at the national film theater. And it was the only showing ever, I think in this country on a, on a, on a big screen. And we all left, well, I, they weren't Dylan people either. So, I mean, they had, they just looked at me like I was scum, you know, because nobody, including me understood any of what was going on. I've seen it three or four times since. And each time I understand it a bit better. I still don't quite get it, but I kind of sort of get it now. And uh, it, but, but one thing I do get is that it was very, very brave because it's completely uncompromising. There's these long speeches uh, that are like obscured or difficult to to understand Dylan lyrics. Anyway, where did you stand on that when you first saw it?
2: Anyway, I loved it yeah. from the first time I saw it. Really? Oh, my God. Great film. You know, Dylan has said... In, in 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 the rare interviews he gives, he has said at times that you know reminded readers and fans that he is not a mainstream artist. He happened to happens to have a knack for writing memorable melodies and great lyrics, and people love his music. But he is not a mainstream artist. He is has a, a huge anti you know uh, avant garde streak yeah, yeah. and and uh, experimental streak. Mastin Anonymous is very simple. I got it from the ti- first time I saw it, which is, it's about the decay of America. In fact, I watched it, I don't know, a few months ago, and I went, it's about Trump.
1: <laughs>
2: In so many words. I don't mean directly about Donald Trump, but I mean, it's about what has what led up to Trump. It's about the... Uh, you know, Americans coming apart into these identity groups, and you know, needing an author- authoritarian government, and the decay of music too. I mean, there's so many themes in it that that, that are
0: current. As he said in 1993, before the insane world of entertainment exploded in our faces,
1: I'm you're way ahead of me there because I can see that now. And when the last time I I saw it, I, I thought it, it was so ahead of its time, like. Like all of his stuff, and I was sort of like tagging along behind. But I'm beginning to see more and more that that's the case. And but the thing is that it is done. The the language is so rich, and for me was was so difficult that uh, it's 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 taken me a long time. Is I guess in a, in a way like uh, visions of Johanna is to me a very difficult song, but beautiful.
2: That's and- the right analogy the songs that, for instance, that he wrote in that period you know the tr- the great rock trilogy of bringing it all back home highway 61 revisited and blah 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 um those songs where he got e- more and more lyrical and 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 less definable in terms mm-hmm. of what he was saying more open to interpretation national mm-hmm. anonymous is just 90 minutes of that that's all
1: mostly without music i think to me that's the difference. i love dylan's bands you know uh, versions of of his songs because they're they're kind of easy but when you when you've got a long speech by Jeff Bridges delivered beautifully but without music it's much more difficult it's to me 10 times more difficult you realize how important the music is to you know holding all that together
2: well music in my opinion music is the superior language music transcends <clears throat> talking as communic- in terms of communication Uh, music can say things that words can't. Now, Bob happens to be brilliant at both, which helps make him Bob Dylan.
1: I read something in one of your articles, um, which was just the little quote from Bob Johnston, um, which was about, uh, you know, the article about the 1970 Dylan. And Bob Johnston said, uh, when Dylan asks, uh, is it rolling, Bob? Uh, He says, uh, it was always rolling. You know, I never turned off the tape. So I realized that, that that line on which we've uh, named our podcast is actually kind of a joke. Is it rolling, Bob? Of course it's rolling. Yeah. It's always rolling. Well,
2: somewhere, you know, at all times, somewhere, somebody somewhere in the world is talking about Bob Dylan. So what your show is, is it rolling, Bob, is just a, a capture of a moment in time of a few people talking about Bob Dylan. But it's always going on. It's just a question yeah. of turning on the tape
1: recorder. That's true. It's always wrong. Did you did you interview Bob Johnston for that article or indeed other articles? He sounds like such a great character.
2: He, you know, he's very funny, very eccentric, uh, a maverick. He, he didn't like squares and didn't like suits, you know, executives, Columbia in particular. <laughs> He was a wild character. He was a real character. They—they they don't have characters. I know I'm going to sound like an old man, which I am. I uh, <laughs> don't make them quite like that. They don't make mavericks much, as mu- or as much anymore. Certainly, there are mavericks nowadays, but there's a lot of herd mentality out there. I don't know. I, you know, nonconformism used to be a thing. You never hear the word nonconformism anymore, or at least mm. I don't. And, you know, of course, D- Dylan is a <laughs> archetypal nonconformist, including the fact that, you know, he dug the Kingston Trio and he put strings on self-portrait and he made the Victoria's Secret commercial. He does all these things that, you know, people shake their heads about. And it's like, it's not up to you, man.
0: I was looking at the, uh, the, the the December 65 press conference in San Francisco the other day for a, a thing I'm, I'm writing. Oh, yeah. And these phrases jump out, which, you know, were jokes at the time or so we thought they were. You know, when someone says to him, do you think you'll ever sell out? And if so, what would you sell out to? And he goes, ladies' garments. Ah,
2: right. And
0: then, you know, a, another one, he says, um, you know, what's your role? And he says, my role is to be here as long as I can. And, of course, and the famous one is, you know, he says, I see myself as, as a song and dance man. All of those are true. Now, you know, they were jokes in 1965, but they've all come to pass.
2: <laughs> so, he was joking. Yeah, but, I yeah. Mean, of course he was. I'm, I'm, of course, he was. but I mean, of course he was joking. But mean, if you're
0: around long enough, do, do do the jokes become true? Do you Does right? your non-conformism become become conformity?
1: Well, he was joking, and he wasn't joking. I think. Yeah. At the same time, I think that's one of you know things like. Um, he mentioned his love of Frank Sinatra, I think, way back in the day. I can't remember when he first mentioned it. But everybody thought he was joking. And then he, you know, bungs well, out his when you five mentioned Blue
2: Moon on Self-Portrait earlier, mm. all I could think of was, yeah, and 50 years later, he made three albums worth of American standards, the mm. Great American Songbook. And yet, for some reason, people couldn't handle it when he did Self-Portrait. But, I mean,
1: some people. Well, he was so young. I mean, you, when Dylan did do those uh, covers of uh, Sinatra and other uh, great American songbook things, he was old. So I think people yeah. forgave him, or at least understood him. Actually, uh, which must—I wonder they if that pissed them off him. being
2: understood. they caught up to him. I mean, yeah. I mean, not that he was the first person to ever do an album of a uh, um, mm. great American songbook. You know, uh, actually. Dylan doing Blue Moon was pretty early in the scheme of things. Way uh, early. Yeah. And he was still in his twenties.
1: Yeah. I mean I remember a few years after that. Uh or actually I'm not sure when it was now. Maybe maybe in the early eighties when Linda Ronstadt did her Great American Standards. She did a couple of covers. Was that in the early eighties? And uh, I remember listening to that because I was rock
2: and roll producer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly.
1: And I listened to those songs again, and I thought, "Wow, this is great." But of course, she wasn't being, you know, groundbreaking or anything. But I, th- I thought these are brilliant, brilliant songs. Uh, you know, and I've been a stupid rock and roll snob because, but now I don't need to. Um, I didn't read, I don't think, any reviews of that. I just decided I played that a lot, and I just thought these guys who wrote these songs are. There's it's genius here, you know. It's just great, great stuff.
2: I grew up with that stuff because my mother had been a Bobby Soxer, a, mm-hmm. a Sinatra uber fan in the uh, in the '40s. She used to go to the Paramount Theater in New York and see Sinatra, and uh, she, uh, you know, that 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 music was ubiquitous in our house when I was growing up. So I knew all those songs.
1: And lyrically, they're, they're just fabulous. Just the, the lyrics. The, the, they're so playful and, you know, unexpected. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure, you know, Dylan probably grew up on on that stuff oh, as well. Oh, absolutely.
2: I mean, you know, think of the, it this way. Think of Basement Tapes, Self-Portrait, World Gone Wrong, and uh, the other one.
1: Good as I've Been to You.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the Sinatra stuff, or Standard stuff, you know, Dylan ha- has consistently gone back to the music that he listened to when he was younger or at a different time because he- either he wanted to or he got inspiration from it or both. I mean, listen to uh, Mother of Muses on Rough and Rowdy Ways. He he praises the fact that song is a muse for him. And, in fact, there's a quote, and I think I used it in the uh Another self-portrait liners, where he told John Perales of the New York Times, he said, "My my main religion these days, and this was in the late '90s, I believe. My my, my religion is song. You know, that's how I worship. Is through song. I think that that's true. He, you know, he went through. He was he's Jewish, obviously, and he went through the you know Christianity, and he probably delved into all kinds of things we don't know about, and don't, you know it doesn't matter." matter. Uh, he's a thinker. He's done a lot of thinking and searching. Uh, but ultimately, it's music. That's what he's about.
1: Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded digitally, stuck inside mobile. Engineered by Tushar Manek and produced
0: by Robin Geis. Digital imaging by Finn Geis. Music is by Sam Hare.
1: We're a part of Pantheon Podcast, the music podcast network
0: find us on twitter at IsItRollingPod. rolling
1: Pod. ever since the british burned the white house down there's a bleeding wound in the heart of town i saw you drinking from an empty cup i saw you buried and i saw you dug up it's a long road it's a long and narrow way if i can't work up to you you'll surely have to work down to me someday